Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. And we are going to start by talking about the coup in Niger, which I've recently learned is the uh, pronunciation for it. I always went with uh, Niger, but I guess Niger sounds better, rolls up the tongue. Uh, better than the <laughs> the other way you could say that country's name. But uh, <clears throat> uh, the Niger president, or the Niger president, Mohamed Bazoum, has been deposed by the military in a coup, as you may already know. The mass unrest that sprung up after this was, surprisingly, both in favor of the coup on one side and against the coup on the other. So it's not just anti-coup. In fact, from what I've seen, a, a majority, and again, this could just be the imagery in the videos skewing the perception of this, but from what I've seen, is that most of the unrest has been spawned in favor of the coup. People have risen up in in support of the coup, which is a bit of a strange thing. I guess they're just really happy. Or again, it could just be the perception. Maybe they, they were whipped up and paid for by the military. Who knows? We'll get more information on this as it goes on. But since the coup happened, the military has shut down the country's borders. They've, it's been put on lockdown. And a number of things has, a number of things have transpired. I believe they have named uh, one of their officers as the leader of the country for the time being. Uh, I'll see if I can pull his name up while I'm uh, live, while I'm live on the air. But uh, the Niger military has warned against any foreign militants or any, any foreign interventions in the country, which is natural considering how prone to intervention uh, a lot of other countries happen to be. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, the United States. And in considering this part of the world, France. This is part of France's sort of unofficial empire that they've maintained. Because a lot of the countries in the region still use local denominations of the franc, which is France's currency. Uh, strangely, even though the French use the, they use the euro, but I, they still control the currency, the franc. Because it's, it's their currency. So they, they get to control whether or not you have inflation or deflation in these countries. Which, yeah, I don't know if I would be too happy with that. If I, if I was a sovereign nation, which America is, I would at least expect my government to be the one responsible for the printing of my currency. I, you know, now that I think about it, how, how would, why would you consider, why would you go along with letting other people... Uh, and I guess if the currency is stronger, then I guess that would be a sound reason. But I'm just trying to think from the standpoint of other countries running your currency. Couldn't be me. <laughs> no wonder the colonies rebelled in 1775. <laughs> I mean, we had we had an inflation crisis of our own during the war, which all, makes it all the more impressive that our dollar became as strong as it did by 1900. To go from rags to riches so fast really does make you think about the history of our lovely little nation but back to the the topic at hand niger um yeah the military has come out and they've warned against any foreign interventions in the country and they were very very quaint they were very prudent to do so because it, it didn't take long for calls for such an intervention to come about uh, namely from France and either from and also from the United States and the UN. We talked about 
uh, Antonio Guterres calling for UN intervention in Niger. So these guys knew what, what was up. These guys knew what was up when they came to power. Uh, they've warned against this. The, the new junta has proclaimed its favorable stance towards Russia. Uh, and this is also a sentiment that seems to be echoed by the pro-coup uh, writers, I should say, the, the unrest that is on the side of the coup that's sort of taken over the streets of the country. They are also seemingly pro-Russia as well. And since the proclaiming of this favorable stance towards Russia, the protests and the riots in the country have taken on a sort of anti-colonial flavor. And I say that because it didn't take long for them to suddenly shift towards being anti-French as well as pro-Russian. And I have uh, just pulled up the leader, General Abdurame, Abdurmane, there we go, Abdurmane Chiani. Abdurmane Chiani has been named head of the Presidential Guards Unit, and he is now the new de facto leader of Niger. So Abdurmane is the new leader of Niger for the time being under the military junta. But yeah, the protests have taken on not just a pro-Russian flavor, but an anti-French flavor as well with many of the people in the streets could apparently being heard chanting down with france and other anti-french slogans which uh sort of paired up very nicely and very conveniently with the rioters on sunday storming the french embassy prompting the french government to respond by stating that if any french citizens are harmed and they said military diplomats or civilians then France would respond rapidly. Now that's now that implies military force, because otherwise, how else are you going to respond to that? Because the French didn't the French did not respond diplomatically when the civil war broke out in Sudan. They sent the troops in to get the people out. So with this country here, Niger, if if French citizens are harmed and the French said they will respond rapidly, they're most likely talking about military force, especially given the history between France and Niger. So that's on, that was put on the table almost immediately when this happened. And again, goes back to my point earlier that the coup leaders of this military coup, they, were, they knew what they were on. When they said, then they warned against uh, foreign countries intervening here because they knew, again, how trigger happy a lot of countries were with the whole intervention thing. And France was one of them. But they responded specifically to the French saying that they would respond like this. The Niger military has, one, they placed a contingent of soldiers to guard the French embassy, right? So they, but they have also placed an export embargo of the country's uranium and gold on France. So France will no longer be getting uranium and gold from Niger until some sort of agreement is worked out between the two. And this is a massive deal for France because uh, France in particular, uh, they are famous for deriving 70% of their energy needs from nuclear power. 
and they import a lot of uranium from Niger. But France alone, France was not alone in threatening intervention in Niger. America has also threatened to impose sanctions. The UN, again, openly spoke about sending in peacekeeping forces, aka an armed intervention, and even a number of West African nations have threatened to respond if Mohamed Bazoum, the, the deposed president, is not reinstated. Uh, there was an emergency meeting of the ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, which includes Benin, Cote d'Ivory, Burkina Faso, Liberia, Ghana, Cabo Verde, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, Niger itself, Nigeria, Senegal, Togo, and Sierra Leone. Those are the countries in the ECOWAS. There was an emergency meeting held in Nigeria where they essentially drafted an ultimatum, or at least this is the story. We'll see if it ends up being confirmed or if it's just a good old, a good old dose of fake news thrown into the chaos. But essentially, they seem to have drafted an ultimatum saying that they would respond militarily if Bazoum was not reinstated within one week. So we'll see the results of this this week. Uh, so we'll either we'll be able to talk about it on the next episode or nothing will come of it. And we'll just say that. But lots of chaos, lots of uh, wrenches being thrown. And uh, the, the Niger military junta was not afraid to throw wrenches back. I mean, the uranium thing is really going to hurt France. Like, because think about the situation France is in, because they are in Europe. And Europe is already hurting for energy because they cut themselves off from Nord Stream. Well, they didn't cut themselves off from Nord Stream. Uh, We cut them off without their consent by blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. So they don't get Russian gas from those pipelines. They can get it from the Yamal. They can get it from the pipelines going through Poland and through Ukraine. And eventually, I imagine that some of those will even be damaged as well, or the deals will just run up since no one is going to be willing to renew them because the political pressure or they've decided to stand with Ukraine. So even in spite of the political pressure, I should say that, even in spite of the political pressure for there to be cheap energy in Europe, the leaders of the European countries probably are not going to renew that deal unless they are just wholesale replaced with new people, which is a possibility. A lot of a lot of more right-wing parties are rising in Europe. So we'll see. We'll see. The, the Dutch farmers have, are already taking over the Netherlands. Georgia Maloney took over Italy. Oh, she has, she's, she's been a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the conservative policy. Uh, but you know what? That's not my country. And she hasn't withdrawn support from Ukraine either. So, you know. But it, I... We could very well see brand new faces in Europe that are willing to make peace with Russia, that are willing to have cheap Russian energy, and that are willing to let go of America in exchange for Russia, because they see where their actual interests lie. And it's not with an alliance with America, unless their goal is to fight Russia. Only the the East Europeans who want the, the smoke with Russia want the alliance with America because they want to drag us into the war. But with the situation in Europe, the energy situation being really bad, they have to import from everywhere else, 
and they they got through last winter but because they don't have as much energy coming in from russia they're buying them from third parties who technically are under no obligation to sell to resell the oil the europeans now have a structural problem with energy and it's really eating into the industrial base especially in places like germany so what what happens now with france who's not only going to be feeling the energy crunch because they're on the opposite end of the continent from russia so the gas was already had to travel the farthest just to get to france but what happens now if in the event that they are not able to make a deal with niger what happens when the winter comes and those new those lovely nuclear power plants can't run i mean it doesn't take that much uranium to run a nuclear power plant so they they might be fine but we're talking months here and of course they they can get it from other places let's not going to pretend that they can't but they get it from this place for a reason perhaps the price perhaps it's the quantity maybe the sudden shock of not having it for the time being even if they get a deal immediately after like within the next few weeks or a month or so the shock might still send really bad ripples through the french economy africa is fighting back and it's it's very interesting to watch i'll just say that much it's very interesting to watch it wasn't that long ago that i was speculating on a second scramble for africa but that scramble seems to be taking on a much more different tone the scramble is not for the exploit of the african resources the scramble appears to be for the development of africa rush and we'll get into russia in a minute but you have russia coming in you have china coming in the big boy india's getting in on the game of development projects in africa japan even is getting in they're they're much more on the down low they have their own essentially belt and road program going on in africa the scramble is for developing africa rather than for the exploitation of africa which uh no matter how you cut it that that beats the old scramble for africa any way you you want to look at it so will spain and portugal get on on it i think that they will in time it'll take them a minute you know but i think that they're definitely going to be in on that scramble and turkey will as well turkey has an alliance with libya if uh, and turkey is going to be if that's the only country that turkey's a part of with the the developments well that's still a contribution even if it's only for them to exploit the resources of the eastern mediterranean the scramble for africa is for the development of africa which might although it it does go the the question does arise i should say will it really penetrate the interior of africa because the coastline they're definitely going to be set the coastlines are going to be set because especially the eastern coast of africa the eastern seaboard because you have that's or china india and, and japan are coming from russia comes in from the northeast but what about west africa what about southwest africa what about south africa itself south africa may be a BRICS member but they're not exactly a, a heavy hitter what happens there uh and the, the east the east africa is really going to be looking really going to be looking pretty especially once you factor in the, the east african economic community you know kenya tanzania 
uh, Uganda, Brunei, Rwanda, and Congo, and Congo, and South Sudan. Like, this is a, a very big block that has access to both coasts of Africa. All you need is a good a good rail line running from the the slim, but it's there the slim coastline that that uh, Congo has, the Democratic Republic of Congo has on the Atlantic, you run that to the Indian Ocean, boom, you like, you're good to go. Like East Africa is really gonna get disproportionate amounts of this development and infrastructure and industry. And by the growth of their own economies, they'll become even more vibrant trading partners for each other. And that's just gonna create a, a very strong positive feedback loop, especially when you factor in the peace taking over the Middle East and the rise of the Islamic states. Uh, I talked about that in my episode about the rise of the Middle East, how they have the demographic structure to dominate the 21st century in a way that is largely overlooked. Everyone's, everyone's focusing on East Asia, who has the same demographic problems as the West. The Middle East is going to be the big boy players of the 21st century. Well, they're, they're going to be the rising stars, I'll say that much. We can already see who a lot of the big boy players are. But if you combine the rising in the Middle East with all this development pouring into Africa disproportionately into the eastern side, the Indian Ocean is going to be lit. <laughs> the Indian Ocean and the East Mediterranean, the Middle East in general, it's going to be a magnificent place for trade and prosperity like perhaps like nothing we've ever seen since again pre-columbus expedition pre-spanish inquisition like we're going back to that era of time where the middle east is where all the wealth is the middle east combined with east africa and india is going to get a dis is going to get a disproportionate share of that as well one off their own ability to generate wealth due to their large population once they get their industry going because uh, they'll have the riches of East Asia to tap into, even with the, the bad demographic structures that'll be hindering East Asian growth. But East Asia is very advanced already in terms of infrastructure and technology, especially China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. India is going to be able to reap that from its East and tap the mark, the energy of the Middle East and the markets of Africa India and East Africa are going to be some big one. That entire, the entire Western half of the Indian Ocean is going to be a massive center of trade, massive center of trade and prosperity and investment. But what, but what of West Africa? Is that going to, sh is that wealth going to trickle down to West Africa? I'm not entirely sure. Like maybe it's going to make its way to South Africa. Maybe Brazil will, will throw its hat in the race with a lot of West African countries. Maybe Spain and Portugal get in on it. Uh, but Spain and Portugal are minuscule compared to the Middle East, Turkey, India, China, Japan, Russia. They just look, the Iberians can do a good deal when they set their minds to it. But they, the best they're going to get is Morocco, Algeria as large partners in that they're not in uh, spain and portugal by themselves are not industrializing all of west africa i'm just gonna i'm just gonna 
put that out there right now. They're not in. They're not industrializing. They're not going to be doing massive infrastructure deals. They're they're not going to turn West Africa into Atlantis by themselves. That, that that's just not going to happen. And I don't know. From maybe France will get in on Algeria. Maybe Italy will get in on Algeria, Libya, and Egypt. Maybe Greece will get in on in Egypt. They're they're already sort of partnering up as a sort of counterbalance to Turkey and Libya. But again, you you have relatively minor players going for West Africa. But the further to the east of Africa you get, you get more overlap between the Europeans and the major players, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria. Uh, I I think Syria is going to be a a big boy player as well once they finish rebuilding. The, the, uh, The Saudis... Even if Israel decides to have a change of heart and they get in on this, uh, but East Africa is going to be reaping a disproportionate amount of all this wealth and investment just by proximity. Because that's, if you look at a map, it's easy to see why every major investing country is going to be coming from the East. Russia's in the Northeast. Turkey's to the Northeast. Saudi Arabia is to the Northeast. Iran is to the Northeast. India's to the east, China's even further to the east, Japan is even farther to the east. And then, of course, the East African Federation slash East African community, they are, I mean, it's in the name, they're in the east. And Ethiopia is one of the most prosperous African nations anyway, and where are they? They're in the east, they're in the Horn of Africa. It's, and, and Egypt has the Suez Canal. Where are they? They're in the east. All the heavy hitters in Africa are going to be in the East, and all the development is all pouring into these countries. Like, I really, I see a massive disparity being set up that will leave West Africa. West Africa is going to do all right. I mean, it's going to, some of that wealth is going to trickle down to them. Just a massively disproportionate share is going to go to East Africa, like, it could be the di- it, we could see the difference between West Europe, Western Europe, and Eastern Europe, circa the eighteen hundreds. Like that, that could be the difference we're going to be looking at. Where you have, where you go from having paved roads to dirt roads, industry to cottage and guild. Like it might actually be that night and day by the end of this century, with all this investment and infrastructure and economic forces at play, demographic and market we're looking at a massive transformation of Africa. The, the scramble for Africa did not take on the shape that I thought it was when I speculated on it at first. And you know what? It's a good thing. It didn't take on that shape. It's, it's a lot better for the Africans this way. And it does make things a lot more interesting to talk about. And where's Niger's place on this? Well, in a world that moves towards nuclear power, which eventually the African states are going to, I don't think everyone's going to want to stay addicted to oil, especially if, because history is history. There's going to be a moment in time where some African country or some number of African countries are going to feel like they got screwed over by OPEC because OPEC did a production cut during a time when it was already, when these countries were already hurting. Now, what those countries end up being in the end, I don't know. But if something like that happens and it's it's bound to happen at some point where someone feels that they got wrong they're going to start looking for alternatives and nuclear power is going to be a readily available one 
which might carve a place for Niger and other countries out for the supply of uranium and other nuclear materials. But yeah, we're looking at uh, not just a revolution in Niger. We're looking at a revolution in Africa all together. Uh, and the more you look at it, the more you start to see that the Europeans, as they cut themselves off through sanctions and as they get cut off in return, because you know, the rest of the world is standing up for itself a little bit more. Uh, as the Europeans get both cut themselves off and get cut off from trade and partnerships with the rest of the world, we're going to start really going back to that pre-Columbian geopolitical order where it is the east and the middle east that does well and this time the africans are going to be in on that as well instead of a handful of city states and kingdoms a lot of east africa the i believe the entire eastern half of africa is going to be in on the take and the west minus the united states and, and minus russia the west is well, they're going to fall behind and they're going to be the backwater. Europe is going to go back to being the backwater relative to the rich, the riches and the dynamic markets of the East. It's going to be the difference between Greece and the Persian Empire, between Greece and India, between Greece and China. Like, it's crazy to think that after all this time, after all this progress, that we end up going back to that. But I suppose when the, the, the playing field is level, the Europeans just fall off. And it's not like they're going to be poor. I'm not saying that they're poor. But the size of the country and the size of the populations are, once you start to get on a level playing field, it's just going to be disproportionately in favor of the Middle East and the East, as it traditionally has been. The Europeans got a, a few hundred years. They got a, a few centuries to themselves with a, a, just a, a, a real breakout with the scientific and industrial revolutions combined with, I suppose, the political revolutions of the French Revolution, where you got liberalism, real liberalism taking control of the continent, freedom combined with market freedom and, and free enterprise and industry and they just had this massive growth where the rest of the world really lagged behind N not in population but the rest of the world lagged behind economically and in development and the colonial systems that the europeans set up uh may attempted to keep it that way but in the in this world in this multipolar world where the the playing field is going to be a, a lot more level like the difference between the french and the algerians is not what it used to be in 1860 or, or in 1850, or in 1820 for that matter, where the Europeans have guns and the other guys don't, that difference isn't there anymore. And the same is starting to be true for the economies at large. And so as we get to a, a more even footing for everybody, the natural inclination is going to be that the places with the larger populations who are more proximate to more trading partners are going to do well. And that's going to benefit the Middle East. That's going to benefit India. That's going to benefit China. That's going to benefit East Asia. And it, and as a proxy, it's going to benefit East Africa. 
who it's not going to benefit as much is Europe. The United States, well, the United States didn't exist in the pre-Columbian era, so we will get a unique view of what that world looks like in a world that has a United States and a Brazil and a Mexico. So that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, Very interesting indeed. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.